0: This is the Word of God, 1 Kings 19, verse 22. Sorry, 1 Kings 19, verse 15. And the Lord said to Elijah, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of abel Mechula." Shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave seven thousand in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. And then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him or served him. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of God endures forever. Well, when it comes to finding your calling in life, Americans are often told, follow your passion, pursue your dreams, or do what you love and love what you do. Now, there's some truth in those um, exhortations, um, but are they the whole truth? Do these mantras truly represent the path to vocational clarity, personal fulfillment, and human flourishing? Well, not according to a new study by researchers from Stanford University and Yale NUS College. They find that following your passion is likely to lead to overly limited pursuits, inflated expectations with respect to your career and economic outcome, and early and perhaps eventual burnout. The study's authors concluded people are often told to find their passion as though passions and interests are preformed and must be simply discovered this idea, however, has hidden motivational implications. Urging people to find their passion may lead them to put all their eggs in one basket, but then to drop the basket when it becomes difficult to carry. Although our culture tells us to look within, assuming a fixed set of passions to guide us on our way, researchers find more positive results among those who allow room for interests and intelligence to develop over time." The study encourages us to ask Are we still looking only to the self, or are we looking outward and upward as well? As David Brooks once wrote, Most successful young people don't look inside and and then plan a life. They look outside and find a need, or perhaps even God's call, which summons their life. And I've often said in my family something essentially that the calling of God is where. God and the giftedness and gladness of man meet the neediness of the moment? As Sinclair Ferguson says in his book, Discovering God's Will, what are the needs of the moment? What are your settled interests and desires? And what opportunities has God set before you? Those are helpful um, questions to ask as you're thinking about and planning your future. There's a great book by Kevin DeYoung that was given out this year at the Lead with Character Uh, retreat with the boys and the men. It's called Do Something, I think is the title of the book, and it's a really helpful book for young people when it comes to finding your will, and it really demystifies the whole process. And in my own experience as as I've been walking through life, the next step has always been clear, sometimes surprising, but always clear when you're walking with God. He leads you as He opens doors, closes doors, and creates in your heart Um, a desire. You know, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart Um, is a twofold promise. When God is our delight, He often creates a desire for His will within our hearts and leads us down the way. An interesting kind of example of a person finding their call is William Lane Craig, who's a Christian apologist. I wouldn't agree with all of his theology by any means. he's been called one of Christian philosophy's boldest apostles, Sam Harris, Harris, one of Satan's Rottweilers and the atheist. He's been called that, uh, one of the horsemen of the apocalypse. He said that Craig is one of the Christian apologists who has put the fear of God into many of my fellow atheists, which is probably why the atheist Richard Dawkins refuses to debate him. Um, But interesting, Craig is, is a brilliant scholar, but he started off life with a a, a pretty devastating neurological diagnosis. He was diagnosed uh, early in life with Charcot-Marie-Tooth syndrome, which is a neuromuscular condition where you get um, the atrophy um, of peripheral nerves and muscles, and you kind of end up with a weakness in your hands and limping and so forth. And he said in his testimony, Craig said, "'My boyhood was difficult. Children can be very cruel,' But as he was going through high school and college, he knew that sports weren't much of an option for him, and so he joined his high school debate team. But he had really no interest in debating about religious matters. He just enjoyed the cut and thrust of debate. And it was only later in life, when he, came, when he was challenged by the call of Christ, that he began to think more deeply. And the question that gripped him was, "'Was I prepared to become this man's follower?' And that's really the great question when it comes to finding your, your place in God's call. But before you find God's plan for your life, the, the, the real question, young people, is are you prepared to let Christ be your Lord and your Master? That it's not, oh, I hope He's got a good, a good life for my plan. No, He's he, he got a plan for my life, and it's all about me serving Him and, and honoring Him and what does that mean? For one, it might mean ministry, and for others, uh, it might be the noble work of a carpenter, a plumber, a blacksmith, a baker, a candlestick maker, or some other profession. Um, but but um, the first question that, that must grip you as you look for your place in God's world is, are you prepared to have God's Son as your Lord and as your Savior, as your Savior and your Lord? You can't take half of Christ a Savior and Lord, and it's what is He calling you to be and to do. And then it was later as uh, Lane Craig studied philosophy that he really began to feel this sense of calling and desire to take his debate skills and his philosophical skills and his writing and speaking skills. He's remarkably eloquent and used them to propagate the name of Christ and the cause of the gospel. His giftedness, his gladness, and the needs of the moment kind of intersected, intersected and the call of God in his life became very clear. So, we, we, we come in our passage this evening at the end of 1 Kings 19 to the call of Elisha. It's a very short um, pericope, a little beautiful cameo portrait of how the call of God intersected this remarkable man's life. And there are a number of principles here regarding calling, which we'll explicate. But the first thing I want you to see is just the grace of God here. God is removing Elijah, not because Elijah's failed. Um, A.W. Pink's really hard on Elijah here, and I I think unduly so. God is promoting Elijah. He's he's, he's done all that He plans to do through Elijah, pretty much. He's going to take him to heaven soon. um, And uh, That's wonderful for Elijah. But as he takes Elijah away, remember, Israel have stubbornly refused to follow this man's word. And if you were God, what would you do? I would take Elijah away. I would take Elijah away and the prophetic word away and leave Israel to stew in their own juice. And yet that's not what God does. He takes one prophet away, and before he does, he's already raised another prophet up. And that tells you something, does it not, about the heart of God, That is, God's heart is gracious and merciful, that, he, that he, he, the last thing He'll take away from you is His Word, but when He takes His Word away, what darkness. But you have Elijah, you have Hosea, you have Amos, these prophets called to speak especially to God's northern kingdom. In the Northern Kingdom had done all they could to separate themselves from God, His temple, His true worship. They had the, the bastard religion of these two golden calves in Dan and, and Bethel, uh, and yet God stubbornly kept His word before them. Now granted Elijah, Elisha, sorry, is going to be a prophet of judgment, especially in the house of Ahab, but still, God's prophetic word is available to these people, and that is a remarkable mercy a remarkable mercy, the grace of this call. But the first thing I want you to see this evening, we just have three points tonight, is how suddenly God's call comes, right? So, Elijah departed from there, verse 19, and found Elisha the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth yoke. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. I'm not sure Elisha predicted this this morning when he got out of bed that morning, had his cornflakes or his porridge. I'm not sure he was expecting suddenly to be intersected by the call of God to become the next Elijah in Israel. And yet, when the call of God came, it found him willing, right? But it's interesting, as this sudden call comes upon him, and, and God's call comes in all kinds of different shapes and forms and sizes, right? And you must be very careful that you don't absolutize your own sense of calling. Uh, like, whenever I was in um, ministry or in medicine back in Northern Ireland, um, Derek Thomas, let's see, he went in, he left America in 96, as I recall, and I went to him in about 1994, regarding a sense of calling to ministry when I was a fourth-year medical student. And Derek wisely told me to finish medicine. Um, it was a very wise uh, piece of advice. He had told me then to leave medicine and go into the ministry. I would have gone immediately. He said, finish medicine. It'll never. It'll never be a, You'll never regret having finished medical school. You always finish what you start, son, he said. And that was tremendous advice. If I'd left medicine in the middle of medical school, my parents would have been crestfallen and, and very disappointed in me um, and would have, it would have been a blameworthy thing, I think. And he said, also, you, you, it'll, you'll, being a doctor in hospital will equip you for pastoral ministry in ways far beyond your imagination as you meet people on their best days, but oft, often also on their worst uh, great advice. And he said, if you leave medical school in the middle, people will always wonder if you left medical school because you weren't quite sharp enough to finish. So, he said, finish medical school. Bless God. But that's one thing. But the, the issue is, as Derek left to go to America, and I'm wrestling with my call in Northern Ireland, God is opening up doors for medical practice, left, right, and center, and actually very few avenues for preaching, and that was all part of God's providence. Um, but when I did preach, I really felt God's help. But there was a friend of mine and Catherine, a man called Col call Stewart, who I respect greatly. He discipled Catherine in the Reformed faith uh, during her parents' divorce and was a great help to her. And Call was a very senior uh, member of the British Police or the Northern Ireland Police Service. He served in the anti terrorism branch of Northern Ireland. But before that, he had felt a call to ministry for many years. And in his, in his life, God opened up more avenues to serve as a police officer than opened up to preach. And so he deducted from that that God was not calling him into ministry. Now, when the same thing happened to me, and I was getting more opportunities to do medicine than to preach, he came to the same conclusion. God is not calling you to ministry. He said, pursue medicine. And he was right, and he was wrong. He was right. God wasn't calling me to ministry. Then that didn't mean that God wouldn't call me to ministry one day. And you must be careful when you're guiding young people. God doesn't guide all men the same. We're, we're, we're different, and His call comes in different ways. Some people are saved by a sudden sermon that opens the doors of heaven and thunders to them, and they're converted in a service. Other people gradually wake up like a nap on Sunday afternoon where they're asleep, and they're kind of dozing away, and suddenly they, kind of, they gradually hear the birds singing and the kids playing outside and the wind in the trees and they wake up gradually. And sometimes the call of God to ministry can be like that as well. It can gradually come in as God begins to move like a breeze blowing through a a wheat field on a spring day, and the the wind is coming down, and you sort of feel this kindling of your spirit to preach and proclaim God's Word. It's it's different for one man than it is for another, so we shouldn't absolutize it. But for Elisha, it comes in a sudden moment a cloak landing on his back as he's plowing in, the, plowing in the field. It's interesting to note, though, that the call of God found Elisha faithfully working in the field of present duty. He was evidently faithful. He wasn't sitting at home, you know, um, playing PlayStation while his dad was saying, When well, you get outside and, and, you know, get after the plowing, son. No, he's out working hard in his father's field. And one of the best places to meet, if God is going to call you to ministry, wherever that call meets you, the best place for it to meet you and the best preparation for it to meet you is faithfulness in your present duty, whether it be as a student, whether it be as a musician, whether it be as a a plumber, electrician, physician, lawyer. Um, It is a very, very, very bad preparation for being a good minister by starting off being a bad lawyer or a bad accountant or a bad electrician or whatever else, right? And I'm reminded of Charles Haddon Spurgeon when he speaks of a brother. Um, And he said, "'I've met ten, twenty, a hundred brothers who pleaded that they were quite sure, quite sure that they were called to the ministry.' because they had failed in everything else. This is a sort of model story, Spurgeon says. "'Sir, I was put into a lawyer's office, but I never could bear the confinement, and I could not feel at home in studying law. Providence clearly stopped up my road there, for I lost my job. What did you do then?' Spurgeon says. "'Why, sir, I was induced to open a grocer's shop. And did you prosper?' "'Well, I do not think, sir, I, I was ever meant for that trade, and the Lord seemed quite to shut my way up there.' for I failed, and it was in great difficulties. Since then, I have done a little in life insurance agency and tried to get up a school besides selling tea, but my path is hedged up, and something within me makes me feel that I ought to be a minister. My answer, Spurgeon says, is generally yes. I see you have failed in everything else, and therefore you think that the Lord has especially endowed you for His service. But I fear you have forgotten that the ministry needs the very best of men and not those who cannot do anything else." A man who would succeed as a preacher would probably do right well either as a grocer or a lawyer or anything else. A really valuable minister would have excelled at anything. There is scarcely anything impossible to a man who can keep a congregation together for years and be the means of edifying them for hundreds of consecutive Sabbaths. He must be possessed of some abilities and be by no means a fool or a ne'er-do-well, Jesus Christ deserves the best man to preach His cross and not the empty-headed and the shiftless. And um, that's one of my concerns um, as I look at um, candidates for the ministry coming through today. They're not often the best young men in the church, and therefore, they're also often not the best young men in the pulpit either. And be great at what you're doing now, because in most things in life, in most jobs in life, um, the, the, the real secret to your success is the mundane and boring aspects. Like, everybody wants to be like a Navy SEAL when you're a young man, right? But uh, imagine, having never been a major SEAL, Navy SEAL, but kind of important to keep your gun clean, which is pretty boring. It's kind of important to plan your missions really well and work out, you know, all those different things. Um, if you're an F-18 pilot, really glamorous flying at the speed of sound. But all those little buttons you've got to press, first of all, in the right order to get the plane started, kind of matters. And that's all pretty boring, probably. And then, you know, the, the uh, long days waiting in the, in the squadron room for a, a, an emergency call is pretty boring. Lots of boring stuff. And likewise, a lot of young men want to be in the pulpit preaching with power, but they don't want it. They haven't got so much Yearning to be back in the study, parsing Hebrew verbs and Greek verbs, and and reading books and commentaries, and going through the hard work, of putting together a sermon. And in most jobs, it's those it's those hours of um, real difficult, hard graft, graft that lie behind the secret of a man's success. And if you can do that in one area, you can probably do that in every area. And if you haven't got the heart to be a good student in math in high school, You probably won't have the heart to be a good student in Hebrew at seminary, and then a good pastor in the pulpit, and praying for the people, and all those different things which are behind-the-scenes kinds of work, and often fall by the wayside if you haven't got a heart for hard graft and the unseen details of um, difficult and often thankless labor. That's the first thing, then, how suddenly uh, God's call comes. Then secondly, how costly God's call is. I'm reminded of um, Bonhoeffer's famous comment, when Christ, bids a ma- when, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And you see essences of that here in Elisha's call. He's called to die to uh, natural affection, and, or familial affection, you might say, and to financial security. He's called, first of all, to die to familial affection. Um, Elisha left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And Elisha said to him, Go back, for what have I done to you? Uh, that's a difficult Hebrew, he, Hebrew um, verse to explain in, in the Hebrew or the English. Um, I think Elisha is saying, you know, whatever I have done to you, I have not I've called you to, to serve God, to forsake all, but, but I've, I've not called you to, to uh, entirely divest yourself of familial affection. But there is a leaving and a cleaving here. Now, some commentators um, jump forward in their Bibles to Luke 9 and see an evidence here of Elisha being um, double-minded. If you turn in your Bibles quickly to Luke 9, the famous story of Christ um, calling a man to follow Him. Luke 9, 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to Him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. To another He said, Follow Me. But He said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. Now, you could take that, and it's possible to interpret this this way, that Christ is an even greater prophet than Elijah, and so th- there's no opportunity to go back and, and follow parental duty. But the last verse here, I think, clarifies Christ's meaning. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God, right? Um, and here's Dr. Davis commenting on this. The fellow in Luke 9 is far different from Elisha. Jesus' comment in verse 62 pictures one who has resolutely taken up a task, the plow, only to be continually looking back. That is, he, is, he has a divided mind. Luke 9 61 is only a formal similarity to Elisha's call in 1 Kings 19. In Luke 9, saying goodbye is an obstacle to kingdom commitment, whereas in 1 Kings 19, going back to say goodbye, functions as the entry into kingdom service. Elisha goes back to sever his connections, not to delay his commitment. He does not return to hold back, but to cut loose. Uh, And I think that's a more fair interpretation of Elisha's behavior here. He's going back to honor his mother and father um, and to essentially leave them and cleave to his new master, Uh, Elisha, Um, but still he goes back to kiss them. There's a natural affection here. He's leaving uh, mother and father. He's he's moving into a new stage of his his life, and it's going to mean a lot less time at home with mum and dad. They're going to lose him. He's going to lose them, but he has a higher call to serve a greater master. And there's always a cost like that in following Christ, whether it be following Him in conversion or call, following Him in your, in your vocation. There will be a call, uh, many blessings. When we left Northern Ireland to come here, um, I didn't realize what it would mean. It, it really was um, I didn't think at the time that I'd only see my parents a handful of times. I'd only hug my mother and father a handful of times ever again in my life. Um, it didn't dawn on me at the time. Now, having said that, um, without in any way minimizing my parents and their, their deep place in my heart, God has given us um, parents, fathers in the Lord, grandmothers and grandfathers in the Lord to my children in every congregation we have gone to that I've gone a very far way um, to fill that gap and to supply that need in my children's lives, but it was as a cost. I didn't fully weigh and calculate at the time. It didn't occur to me um, the cost of it, and there's always a cost in following Jesus, although um, the cost for Him to purchase us as followers was much greater, of course, but there's always a cost, and we must weigh it. You also have to die to financial security. His father has twelve yoke of oxen, which is a considerable amount in those days, which meant he must have had a sizable pasture land to plow and had the means to provide so many animals to do the plowing for him. And so, uh, Elijah's walking away from considerable financial prosperity in the process, the cost of following Jesus. But I'm reminded of it's either Ralph or Ebenezer or Erskine in the two initial Uh, associate Presbyterians who began the ARP way back in Scotland, but one of them, either Ralph or Ebenezer, I forget, said, if a man was the king of the universe and left his throne for a pulpit and thought he was was receiving a demotion, he was being demoted, leaving the throne of the universe for a pulpit, that man would know he was not called to Christian ministry. Um, But there's a cost, and it's weighed in earthly terms. And then lastly, um, and this is a pretty uh, mundane point, but how boringly God's call comes at first. For Elisha, the call was mundane before it was miraculous and marvelous. He leaves, he follows Elisha, and what's he do? He arose, went after Elijah, and literally served him. In 2 Kings 3 verse 11, Jehoshaphat um, asks Ahab, Um, is there no prophet of the Lord here? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered, it wasn't Ahab, sorry, but he he asks, and and, and the king of Israel's servant answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Uh, That was his service. This is the prophet, the new Elijah. But in those days, before he became the new Elijah, his job was to wash Elijah's hands. Pretty boring stuff. He wasn't raising the dead he wasn't preaching to thousands of people. He wasn't calling fire down from heaven. He was simply helping Elijah wash his hands, um, and that's fairly uh, mundane. And God's service is like that, as I said earlier on. It's, always, it's often the mundane, and, that, and the willingness to stoop to the mundane that holds uh, the secret to our success In the marvelous. It was that way for the Son of Man, of course. Jesus lived 30 years in Nowersville, Galilee, before he ever came to public prominence as the town carpenter in a one horse town of Nazareth. There's a wonderful book called Embracing Obscurity, and we'll end the sermon here this evening, but there's a wonderful book called Embracing, um, Security, uh, sorry, Embracing Obscurity by an anonymous author. It's quite funny, actually. In the book, the, the author talks about he knew this would be a great book, and it was. And it was very popular, which it was, and sold very well, which it did. And then he realized if the title is Embracing Obscurity, I can't really put my name on the book. And he talks about how that <laughs> caused him some pain for a while. And then after he made the decision it's going to be an anonymous book, used to fantasize about people finding out by accident and his name uh, becoming famous by accident, kind of on purpose. But still, he thought about it. It's a fantastic book, very humbling. Um, He says this about Christ, the supreme being, the one who spoke our entire universe into being with a word the namer of stars and the crusher of mountains, the God whose face necessitates veiling to preserve a man's life, the one responsible for each breath you've taken while reading this paragraph, the only omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent reality—yeah, that God—became a roughly eight-pound mass of created cells. He took on skin, blood, and DNA, and all the pain, heartbreak, and weakness that go along with those trappings. He became human, the weakest form of human at that. You've really, you can't get any more helpless than an infant. If you've taken care of one, you recognize that his existence depends on another human being to keep him alive. He can't eat, take shelter, or keep from danger on his own. A baby's life depends completely on his or her caregiver's competence. So, there was Jesus, son of the everlasting God, as a homo sapien, relying on his mummy to nurse him, and change his diapers. Have you ever stopped to marvel that 90 percent of Christ's earthly life could be described much like ours? He spent roughly 30 of his 33 years living a largely ordinary life, being submissive to sinful parents. Think about that, being submissive to sinful parents. Maturing, living, working, building relationships, studying and teaching the Scriptures, loving people and loving God— We'd be simpletons to believe that a God who so obviously orchestrated his son's birth and public ministry down to the minutest detail would leave the bulk of his life to happenstance. No, Christ's obscurity was as purposefully planned and equally glorifying to God as his journey to fame and his fall from the public's favour. Words that describe the disposition of the Christ we see in Scripture humble, thankful, righteous, a servant, his only ambition to submit to his Father's will, he was consumed with loving God and those around him, are not the kind of words that describe many of Christ's followers, famous ones and otherwise. We are proud, greedy, sinful, self-focused. Our most driving ambition is to free ourselves from having to rely on the Father. We are consumed with ourselves and use those around us for our own advancement. Christ brought the Father glory by becoming nothing. He emptied Himself, becoming nothing. If He is our example in everything, it follows that we also will glorify our God when we embrace an obscurity of heart for His sake and for the sake of others. We are told, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, Philippians 2 verse 5. Yet interestingly enough, our current modus operandi appears alarmingly similar to another disposition of which we can learn in Scripture, and that is Lucifer's. He says, the trouble with you and me and the rest of humanity is not that we lack self-confidence, as we are so often told by the world, but that we have far too much self-importance. The thought of being just another of the roughly 100 billion people to have ever graced this planet offends us, whether we realize it or not. We have such a high opinion of ourselves that to live and die unnoticed seems to be a grave injustice. And God prepares Elijah, Elisha sorry, for service by essentially washing or helping wash Elijah's hands after he uses the restroom, um, which is a fairly humbling service. And if God will ever… Lift a man up to make him great. He must first crush us down and make us nothing, if we're to be anything like the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to be nothing if it means an opportunity to serve Jesus Christ? It brings us back again, doesn't it, to um, the question of… William Lee and Craig, was I prepared? Are you prepared to c- become this man's follower? If you do, you first must become nothing. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, Jesus says. And that's the secret of success, not just in the ministry, but it's the secret of success as a husband, as a father, as a wife, as a mother as any common garden child of the living God. God has one son without suffering, no, one son without sin, but no sons who are not willing to make themselves nothing to follow the Father and to make our food and drink His will and not our own. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You this this evening for Your Word and Your call in our lives. And Lord, we bless You for the privilege of serving You in the small things. And forgive us, O God. Forgive us for those times. Forgive me for times, O God, when I draw attention to myself and the things I do for You, we and draw, we draw attention to ourselves and the things we do for You, O God. The Christian way is to let not the left hand know what the right is doing." for the Father who sees in secret will reward us openly. And so, we pray, Father, this evening for that humility that is willing to do anything for God and to care not who gets the credit as long as You get the glory. And we offer these prayers, our Father, in Jesus' name. Make us like Jesus and fill us with the knowledge of Your will, with all spiritual wisdom and discernment we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you and bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.